This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 60. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 60, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors. Have a great show for you again. Yeah, I know. I just keep doing that. Great shows. I have on Mr. Brian McTeer from Weathervane Music and Minor Street Recording in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello, Philadelphia. Uh Brian is on to talk about, uh, mostly about Weathervane music, a little bit about Minor Street Recording. He's doing some great stuff, and I really uh, look forward to having this interview come up for you and, and having you check out what he's doing. They're doing some great stuff, uh, real serious community stuff uh, revolving around uh, the artist, the recording studio. You'll hear all about it. It's it's really great. And there's going to be, uh, I got a special little offer that uh, Brian and his crew have offered up at Weathervane Music for working class audio listeners. If you listen to the interview and get to the end of the show, we'll talk all about that. So there, that's coming up. Um, Got this sitting in front of me. Um, The book, How Music Got Free by Mr. Stephen Witt. And uh, How Music Got Free, The End of an Industry, The Turn of the Century, and The Patient Zero of Piracy. It's a fascinating look into kind of a, I don't know, kind of a breakdown of the many personalities and people involved in, I don't want to say the devolution or the evolution. It's just, I don't know, the uh, the path that we uh, wound up on where streaming took over and the birth of the MP3 and uh, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, it jumps from, you know, people working at CD plants, uh, leaking music and people creating online communities for sharing music and record executives. And it's, it's a fascinating book. I'm almost done. I'm on chapter, I think I'm on chapter 16. Yeah. Chapter 16. Really fascinating book. I encourage you to check it out. If that kind of thing interests you, if you, um, are not really aware of, a series of events that took place that got us to where we're at right now, where the music industry is at. If you're just kind of a you know historian and interested in how that all works, yeah, that's going to be a book you should check out. I will put it on the WCA Recommends site uh, with a link to buy it from Amazon. If you do buy it through Amazon, we do get a little bit of a kickback uh, here at the podcast, which helps us support the podcast. That's one way to support us. If you're uh, not cool with that and you want to go through your local bookstore, I definitely, definitely would encourage that. In fact, I would encourage that first and foremost. Go support your local bookstore because, man, I tell you, all the bookstores in my area have closed up. It's a real drag. So we, um, yeah, we got to travel a little ways to get to a bookstore. Sad state of affairs. Anyhow, check out the book, How Music Got Free by Stephen Witt. Really, I'm enjoying that one. And speaking of free, uh, just want to mention really briefly, if you didn't see, I, I shared a, a link that Mix With The Masters had on their Facebook page, and it was a, a, a short video. Um, Tony Maserati, uh, producer, engineer out there doing, he does the Mix With The Masters series, and uh, one of the, this little clip uh, that those guys posted really struck a chord with me, and it was uh, in a positive way. And... I'm starting to, I know I'm, I'm breathing deeply. So, you know, I'm getting ready to like think very, very heavily. Basically the video is Tony talking about the importance of not working for free, the importance of getting paid for what you do and how to navigate, you know, uh, for example, the, there's many different situations that could come up. For example, if you've got a client that you've been working with for, I don't know, several years and they come to you and say, Hey, I want to work on a new project, but I, I don't have any money right now. You know, he talks about, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, being paid later, you know, structured payments and stuff like that. I do that. I totally, um, encourage you to do that if you are comfortable uh, with the client. I have a client that I do that with, and that client is a client of many years. 
that client is very trustworthy and that client has a great track record with paying me back. So I have no problem doing that. So anyhow, um, watch the video if you get a chance. I think it's important. And, uh, and it also kind of reminded me of a conversation that we had uh, uh, one of the shows with uh, Dan Jasper. I can't remember the WCA number on it, but uh, go back into the archives and look it up. Dan is a location sound recordist, and he talks about the importance of, at least in the location sound community, they really, really stress not undervaluing your work because when you do, if you work for free or you work for super cheap, you basically devalue everybody in the community, everybody that that does that kind of work. So check the video out, uh, check the podcast out with Dan Jasper, of course, and then, you know, go and check the Tony Maserati video out um, with Mix with the Masters. I think that it's really, really important to to follow that path, to not work for free, to really just set your rate, stick to it. And if there are circumstances that where people are asking you for uh, free work, maybe maybe it's a, uh, instead of free work, maybe it's, hey, don't pay me now, but pay me later or pay me on monies that come in on the back end, if there is a back end. Yeah. Got to watch that. So that's it. Uh, just wanted to share those, those things, the Tony Maserati video, uh, the Stephen Witt book. So let's get to it here with Brian McTeer right now. Brian McTeer on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Cheers to you. Thank you. Nice to really nice mm. to be here. And you didn't have to go very far. No, and and the <laughs> headphones are solving my bad hair day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so your name came to me because of Bob Bailey, and Bob's going to listen to this, and so he'll he'll know the full story. And he knows he knows he like sending me messages on the website on Facebook. I think he emailed me. He was like, he was your advocate yeah. for sure. Yeah, Bob's so, great. You know, I was like, okay, I got I to find out who this guy is and what the story is. And he <laughs> kept talking about this series, Shaking Through and your name. There's all these names that, you know, Weather Vane Music and all these concepts that I had to wrap my head around. So I went over and I checked, uh, checked it out a, a bit and uh, was really impressed. I was like, oh, this is, this is great. Yeah, thank you. I got to talk to this guy. <laughs> so, um, tell me a bit about yourself. You're in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, we're in uh, the Fishtown uh, neighborhood of Philadelphia. I've been running a recording studio. It's called Minor Street Recordings um, for about 20 years. Actually, I moved here in 20, 20 years ago, which is crazy. I can't believe I have numbers like that to toss around. <laughs> I started the studio um, in my living room where I went to college in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and it was... Uh, on a street called Minor Street. And so we just sort of kept bringing the name along with us. When we moved to Philadelphia, uh, we kept the name Minor Street. There's no Minor Street in Philadelphia, which is funny. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I I was one of those people that I was very, very early sort of like wrapped in the tape op culture, tape op magazine culture. I, I was so bold as to... Uh, you know, write articles in it when it was like half half paper size um, in like the first few first few issues, and you know, I I started out you know very sort of like not great, pretty ham fisted engineer. I was always really nice and really good at getting along with people and really good at you know demonstrating them as my priority. But yeah, I mean, I so you know I started this studio. I just kind of kept doing it and doing it and doing it. Finally got to sort of a point of no return where I was maybe too old to do anything else. <laughs> uh, I know and, that feeling. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, I'm happy I'm doing what I'm doing. In around 2000, I would say that the the nature of this studio has always kind of been about, you know, going very above and beyond for for the people that are willing to pay us. And so early on, I was I became sort of like, the guy who knew about record deals or the guy who knew about, you know, these other things that were important to our clients. And so I sort of started advising them to the best of my abilities as well and sort of just trying to do do stuff to help out these, these artists. And I guess at a certain point, I realized I could sort of separate out that inclination into a, sort of a nonprofit a nonprofit endeavor. And that's essentially what gave birth to Weathervane Music. Now, the idea kicked around and was developed by me and my partner, Bill Robertson, 
for five or six years before we actually pulled the trigger. And we, we sort of had the both good and bad fortune of actually pulling the trigger right when the recession started. And so I say bad because, you know, we probably were expecting that we would be able to raise money. <laughs> I say good because it forced us to learn to do what we were doing on almost no budget. And it actually made us really smart about raising money and, and really smart about, you know, doing what we were doing as a, as a, a thing of true value, which, which I think nonprofits, especially before the recession, you know, had a, had a long history of sort of falling into having really high, being very highly skilled at justifying their, their existence, but not always delivering real value in the present, maybe delivering value for 50 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago. But we were forced to come up with an idea that was like valuable now. <laughs> so tell me about Weathervane Music. What is that encompass? So Weathervane Music is a nonprofit. Our mission is to advance independent music and the community that surrounds it. That's sort of our broad, broad mission. Basically what we do uh, that we're best known for is we produce the Shaking Through video series. It's a documentary video series. We basically cover the, uh, the, the, the creative process, the process and techniques that go into making music in the studio. In addition to that, uh, yeah, so the Shaking Through series is about six years old. We're starting our seventh year uh, this weekend, actually. Besides that, we've also been heavily involved in uh, producing recording workshops here at Minor Street. And we allow people to live stream them, too. So that's actually that's actually sort of opened it up to uh, our workshops started with a maximum of 10 people. Now they usually have hundreds at any given time, which is really cool. People live streaming in. It's pretty great. And then the, the lastly, the last thing that we do is we've started to package the materials that we create for our Shaking Through series specifically for use uh, by colleges and uh, high schools that teach recording. And that is what we have a lot of hope for. That's a brand new uh, endeavor for us. But it, does that is that the part that I, I may have seen on the website where you can download the multi tracks? No, actually. Um, so basic membership for Weathervane Music allows members to download the multi tracks and mix them. They can uh, share them back up on a Shaking Through episode page. So you know, especially for the last year or so. Uh, if you go to a Shaking Through episode and toggle all the way down to the comments at the bottom, you'll usually see about anywhere from 60 to 500 comments. These are conversational threads based around people uploading their mixes and sort of in a really great, friendly way critiquing each other's work. So it's great. So that's basic membership. Um, after I started the basic membership, about the first 20 people to sign up turned out to be educators. They turned out to be people who teach college courses. And a lot of them were asking me if, if it was okay if they would teach with, if they could teach with them in their classes. Basically, that made us realize that there was a market for these materials in actual higher education and secondary education. The Weathering EDU program takes a lot of those same materials that we share with our basic members, but packages them very specifically and very specially for people who are actually teaching. And there's a couple extra educational membership. They're, they're basically student and instructor memberships rather than basic annual memberships like, like most people have, like, like Bob Bailey has. And yeah, so we package these materials so they, they make sense for schools. Was that unexpected? Did you not think that schools were going to sign on? Uh, yes, I did not think that. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I wasn't even, I wasn't even considering it. I, I always thought from the very beginning when we started Weathervane Music that it would eventually be our catalog that over time would sort of gain value, right? Mm -hmm. And that would eventually be the thing that we could sort of sustain, find sustainable revenue from. Of course, I just, I didn't know how. I mean, it was absolutely the age of everything being free, everybody expecting everything for, to be free. You know, nonetheless, Weathervane sort of owns the materials. We own all the masters. We own all the recordings. We share the 
we share we share the revenue that comes from the the recordings if they're licensed for like you know a movie or for a commercial or something like that with the artists we share them 50-50 mm-hmm. but you know we maintain the 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 cr- control of what we can do with those files i think the one thing we thought was oh well, the, this the value of this the value of this catalog of of recordings that we're amassing is going to come from regular annual memberships from individuals out there in the world who want to learn about recording, who want to like listen to a professionally recorded track up close. These are tracks that are played on the radio all the time. These are tracks that these artists, you know, these are real professional, uh, ambitious artists who are working on this stuff. So this is the real deal. And we figured, okay, individuals out there in the world are going to see the value in this. And that's how we're going to derive value from our catalog. It was actually a great surprise when to be, you know, contacted by teachers at colleges and at, and at high schools, because what that means is we have the opportunity to create relationships with academic institutions. So getting a college to pay for student memberships for 160 students is really great for us. <laughs> That's interesting for them, too. You know, I'm looking at it from hiring somebody to teach that maybe they maybe they do have somebody who kind of oversees the whole thing but it kind of lessens the burden on the educator a bit because they can draw from these resources like yours right yeah well certainly i think what what they all told us right away was you know yeah i teach a recording class and we have no professional multi-tracks to work with they'd say so what that means is we kind of have to like illegally download them, you know, and cha- and switch them from being MP3s to being WAV files and all that kind of stuff. Or they would have to use past students' work. And that's not professionally recorded material. That's m- recordings by people who don't know how to record yet, you know. It does help them a lot. I know for me, if if, if I could have shaved like 10 or 12 years off of the learning process in terms of how to make a kick drum, how a kick drum is really actually supposed to sound in its yeah. raw form. If I could have just heard a professional recording by somebody that I respected, you know? So yeah, um, it's a, it's an enormous benefit. That's to fantastic. Teaching. I, uh, I taught for six years uh, at Pyramind in San Francisco and we would just have, I would have bands come in and, you know, they would record either an original song, some would choose to record a cover song just because they didn't, some had different feelings about how, about students having access to multi-track files of theirs. And I guess there was a whole like theft concern or sample yeah. concern. And yeah. I don't know. I, what What's your take on that? Is that a legitimate um, concern or are they just being paranoid? Well, I think it was a concern that's largely tied to the past. You know, um, the music industry used to be highly secretive, very proprietary. You know, there was this idea of uh, of copyright that has certainly changed. Um, certainly, copyright, I think, was something nobody understood in the past. They just knew it was really important. You know, there's different attitudes towards putting your materials out there now. So, So I think, yeah, you're right. An artist might... I mean, in this day and age, I don't have, we don't have any artists who are concerned with people having access to the raw tracks and mix them because they want people mixing their songs. You mm-hmm. know, one of the most common things that we hear people say, members say, is I don't usually like music like this, but I really like this song. Well, it's because they just spent five hours mixing it, you know? And they get, getting to know the tracks. And getting to know they, the tracks. They learn to love it. Yeah. And they, and, and so, so, the artists that we work with want that. They 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 really want that. They want and and the artists regularly they go on tour. They have people contact. They have people come up to them after shows and say, "Hey, I mixed your song on on the Shaking Through episode. That was amazing." And and they love it. I'll tell you the one um, the one place that musicians are anxious is the idea of like untreated, uh, unprocessed maybe sort of like tracks being out there. Someone could hear my voice and hear that I'm maybe not a great singer or whatever. And we assure them that, you know, that's my role. I'm the record producer. I'm going to make sure that what's out there is 
is is great. And it is. Yeah. It is on a track by track level. I've uh you know, it's not like we like auto-tune them for the world to hear them or something. We just get really good performances out of people and we we get them comfortable and we do all our comping and editing right with them right there. Uh so they're psyched about it and from that point forward they're happy with it to be out in the world. So so that is the that's the apprehension that we most commonly hear among young artists today is not like oh man, but then people are going to download my song and they're going to make their own mix and then they're going to sell it on the internet. Um, no. Who the hell is going to buy it? And, and you know, right. even our version of it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's tough to get people to, to do that. Like I said, the bigger anxiety is the sort of seeing the behind the scenes process of making, making music. And, and which, in fact, we're here to prove to them by the experience they have in the Shaking Through recording session that, Production is a high art, you know, and, yeah. and we make it really good. We don't just bury it under layers or under reverb or say like, oh, good job singing. And then we go and do all these things to it. We don't. You don't have to. Even, even, and these are brand new artists, most of them. These are not people who have been singing their whole lives. They're early 20s, mid 20s, you know. It's not like Joan Osborne is in here, you know. And, right. You know. What is a what is a membership cost? Uh, an annual membership costs eighty dollars. We just launched a monthly membership, and monthly membership is eight dollars a month. And what that does is uh, the annual membership gets you access to the entire catalog of available materials all at once. The annual or the the monthly membership, you have access to the same amount of recordings over the span of a year, but it's sort of like selectively doled out through the, you know, month by month. And, and mostly so that we can sort of steer the bulk of our members to be remixing the same stuff at the same time and have, and have conversation and, and that kind of stuff. I can't imagine the infrastructure involved in creating this thing. It's hard. <laughs> it was really hard. Yeah, I mean, so... We had a nonprofit. We had a, we had a, a, a foundation called the Muse Educational Foundation that actually, they actually granted us a lot of money to build the platform and then granted us even more money to build the specific EDU pl platform, the one for colleges and, and high schools. Do you um, have any experience in, in, in building the, the back end of that on the, on the internet? My former partner, Peter English, was a guy I ran Weathervane with for about five years. He's the ultimate sort of DIY guy who's also brilliantly smart and was able to make a lot of headway for us before we were able to get that grant. When we got that grant, my my other partner, Dan Skolnick, who is actually our Weathervane's operations manager, the most complicated part of it, he was bright enough to realize right from the get-go that the most complicated part of building this uh, was the CRM, right? The constituent relations management system that backed it all yeah. up. The thing that all the the... the email address, the, a person's email, you know, and contact information go into that can ultimately be programmed to grant them access when they're signed in on the site. Complicated. Nothing I could ever do. Yeah. I could sooner fly a plane. <laughs> I could. So what, it, why a nonprofit? It's interesting, right? Nonprofit is, when I first started, when I first had the inclination to do it, it was mostly a lot of people's suggestion, a lot of people saying, hey, Brian, you're such a great guy. You should, do a, you should do a nonprofit, you know? You might, you practically are. That would be people's phrase, you know? I guess alluding to the fact that we don't make a lot of money. <laughs> right. Um, so I explored nonprofit, and I was really lucky to uh, have a mentor early on, uh, a woman named Kim Cook at uh, the Nonprofit Finance Fund. They had a Philadelphia branch, and she... It's weird. They they were they're an organization that basically lends money to nonprofits, but in doing so, they've gained all this experience reading applications and learning the financial situations of nonprofit organizations. So she got a grant to take on brand new nonprofits and instruct them on the ways that nonprofits work. And one of the great things that she clarified to me right away is that nonprofits exist first and foremost because the things they're trying to do are not commercially sustainable, right? And so I was certainly of the mind when I started Weathervane Music that music, even pop music, even popular, quote unquote, music, was quickly becoming unsustainable. So that was a lot of the motivation early on. 
But something that she also pointed out was that nonprofit, nonprofit is also a strategy. You know, mm-hmm. it's a business strategy. If you can, you know, be approved as a nonprofit by the IRS, which is really hard. <laughs> what can you can you yeah. explain why is that so hard? Well, you have to explain to a nonprofit, you have to prove to a nonprofit that what you are doing is for the public good. It's not to put money in any individual's pockets. A nonprofit is a public company that has no individual shareholders, right? A public company that does have individual shareholders would be like IBM or Apple. A public company that has no individual shareholders, rather, the public is the sole beneficiary of that nonprofit. That's what you have to prove. You have to prove that that that's how this works. So schools are very often nonprofits. Churches are nonprofits. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of social services are things that, you know, again, would not be co- commercially sustainable, but we as a socialist country, <laughs> <laughs> we want these things. You know, we want hospitals to exist, despite the fact that most people can't afford them. We want you know, schools to exist, despite the fact that when you really add up what the cost would be to send a kid to public school, it's way more than any people, most people can afford uh, in a year. So we had to prove to the IRS that the things we were trying to accomplish were first and foremost for the good of the public and that they were not commercially sustainable. And so uh, the combination of those two things would make it so the IRS would grant us a nonprofit status. And the good thing is that once you achieve nonprofit status, which again, you can't BS your way into having a nonprofit. You know, like it took five years. We, we submitted our application uh, after writing it for about two and a half years. And it happened to go in at a bad timing for the IRS when all of the, um, that, that scandal that was happening back in 2012 and 2013 was going on. So, it actually took about two and a half more years from the time after we submitted it to get approved by the, non- by, by the IRS. But nonetheless, when I talk about the strategy, once you're approved as a nonprofit organization, that means two very, very empowering things. One, you don't pay taxes, right? You don't pay taxes. Um, most you know, businesses pay around 20 to 30% of profits if they would, were to have them. Mm-hmm. in business taxes, in corporate taxes. You don't have to do that as a nonprofit. The other thing is that people, you can donate money to my nonprofit. An individual can donate money to Weathervane Music and that amount of money can come off of their income when they are tallying their taxes at the end of the year. So nonprofits don't pay taxes and they are able to give people the ability to donate money to them in order to lower their own tax burden. Mm. So that's a, that's a strategic strong point. Uh, I should have brought my, our our annual report. I usually have one with me, but you know, Weathervane. I would say last year, you know, probably made let's say a third of our money through member member fees. Mm. We probably made about another third of the money through donations from people who just wanted to donate money. And we probably made about another third of the money from uh, contributions from foundations in the form of grants. Those foundations don't give grants to for-profits, right? They give them to nonprofits. Strategically speaking, I mean, I know our heart, our heart was absolutely in the right place. Mm-hmm. I was able to verify that um, we were, in fact, doing the right thing and that, you know, the IRA, IRS was able to verify that we were right on the money. This was for the public good. Uh, and it was not commercially sustainable. Despite the fact that it was a huge amount of work, it's actually what's made Weathervane music possible. Okay, so I'm sure that people watching people, and or listening are thinking, falling asleep. Ooh. No, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. But I'm sure there's some you know, creative thinkers out there that are thinking, okay, how can I make my recording studio a nonprofit? Okay, so here's my, so here's, I'm glad you asked that. This recording studio is Minor Street Recordings. This is my recording studio, my for-profit recording studio. Weathervane Music is a separate nonprofit organization, does not own a recording studio, has 
offices about five blocks away from here. Weathervane Music is a separate nonprofit entity. So this recording studio where we're sitting in front of this, this MCI console, you know, that tape machine, all the gear that I didn't show you, um, is not owned by a nonprofit organization. It's owned by myself and two other partners. Um, so yeah, so that, that is the thing. The better sort of clarification would be to say, you know, if you want to put the resources of your studio towards the public good, it's possible. It's possible. Minor Street is Weathervane Music's biggest sponsor. So Minor Street doesn't charge Weathervane Music for any of the work that gets done here, which is probably like 30 to 50 days of studio time a year. And we get a lot out of it. Minor Street, I'm like talking, I'm like talking both sides of, a, of, a, of the coin. But as owners of Minor Street, we get a lot out of it because this sponsorship results in this beautiful video series being shot here and a, a series that shows people having a really good time recording music. It's, it's, led to, it's led to a lot of people wanting to come record at Minor Street, you know? So, hmm. so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a two-way sort of partnership in a way, you know? It's complex um, because you're really the common, you're the you're a common denominator, but I mean, legitimately, and this is just me kind of going, "Ooh, is this possible?" Like, do you think it's possible for a recording studio to be a nonprofit to serve the community? A lot of people have had the idea, and we there's even some people in Philadelphia uh, doing it in some ways too. There's an organization in Philadelphia who I, I spoke with recently who, as an organization, you know, they got their nonprofit status, they rented a building, they've built a really sort of very simple recording studio. They're working on making it so they have, you know, memberships for members in their neighborhood who are musicians to come and record. You know, you pay a membership fee, and then that either gets you free recording or reduced fee recording through the rest of the year. It is possible to do that. I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, as a as a as a, a business idea, really hard. I think the thing that makes Weathervane really doable is that there's a huge amount of value that anybody anywhere in the world can get out of it. A studio, no matter what you do, that recording studio is located in a place that you have to be reasonably near. Mm-hmm. to go work in it. So the idea of starting a nonprofit studio, I mean, I've thought of it and thought of it and thought of it, and I've brainstormed it with a ton of people. And it always kind of comes down to the fact that it's probably just not, there's probably not any way it's sustainable whatsoever. So unfortunately, that, that that's where, now I'm not talking anybody out of trying it. <laughs> um, I would suspect, you know, for the cost of recording equipment, the cost of, space, cost of treating and building out that space to be nice, you know, mm-hmm. and a place where people would want to work, you, uh, it's not super advisable in the long run, mm-hmm. you know? I, I would say the only example that I can cite uh, would be the Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it might almost just be easier for someone to start a studio from scratch as a profit, profit-driven venture than it would be to do a nonprofit. Absolutely. Starting a, I mean, really what Weathervane is, is a community building organization, right? And, and we have the benefit of doing it all online. So like I said, we're building community around the world. There's, there's members over the, since we launched membership in 2013, we've had members from over a hundred countries in the world, you know, our reason for doing this has really sort of evolved. I mean, the one thing that we've really kind of come to realize through endless conversation with our members and in the office and with anybody we talk to, we talk about this kind of stuff a lot. One thing I realized is like, this is the first time in human history that a person could just wake up and say, I'm going to be a recording artist. I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. I mean, it was never like that. It was never a possibility, not even close. I feel like today being a recording artist is now finally for the first time in history like what painters and poets could do, you know, 
They could, they, this was a doable life's calling. So with this being the first time in history that people could just opt to be recording artists, and with how popular the notion of recording has been our entire lives, there's a huge opportunity to collect this emerging community. It is an emerging community. I mean, that's who listens to you. That's who watches Shaking Through. Mm -hmm. You know, it's people who are looking to connect with other people around the idea of making music. So that's really what we do. We connect people who want to, you know, explore the recording, you know, a life of recording. So I have a lot of thoughts about that. It's interesting. Um, you saying this reminds me of a, a YouTube video I was watching the other day. Uh, it was a Steve Albini uh, speech at a, um, I think it was an Australian event that he flew out to. And and he just, he talked about how, you know, the notion that the music business is in, you know, great decline was essentially bullshit. He was calling bullshit on it because he he said, you know, really it's in decline for all of the people on the periphery, those other than the artist, the studios, and the fans. Everybody who used to benefit record companies who would, you know, uh, for example, uh, breakage fees on CDs, which were more robust than vinyl, for example, in a contract, like all these little ways they were sucking money out of the artist's deals, you know, that's who it's not working for. But yeah. Studios seem to be busy. Granted, music has taken a shift with the streaming and, and all that. I really encourage not only you, but the audience to, to seek it out. It's Steve's always entertaining, number Hell one. Yeah. And number he's two, awesome. if you really listen to what he says, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of truth to it. And it's a different side of the coin than the narrative that we constantly are being fed that Oh, it's it sucks. It's all terrible. Don't get in. I think I honestly, like I said, we think about this and talk about it every single day. One of the things I've realized is like, okay, music industry, the the one that we remember did disappear. Jobs for people at the top. Mm -hmm. Most of those people went back to school and get jobs in like finance or got jobs in other places. Or you tech know, jobs went yeah. back to law school or something. Well, yeah, you know. The music business, as we recall, as we remember it, that's, that went away. There were people making a lot of money on music the whole time. Really, what nobody has kind of really realized is that the people who started to make all the money, well, I have this theory. I have this theory that, you know, the music industry was all about smoke and mirrors. It was all about a veil, you know, Wizard of Oz, metaphors, whatever, right? There was always, you know, the whole idea of the industry was to really prop an individual or a group of a band up to be gods and to keep the people, the common folk, keep some separation and distance between them, but always be sort of teasing that out. Like your access to this person comes through us, Warner Brothers Records, or comes through us, Matador Records or mm -hmm. Sub Pop, right? I think what nobody saw coming was the number of us down here who also were sort of like kind of hoping to be the famous people or hoping to be the rock star. Mm -hmm. And I think the smartest people in the music industry in the last 20 years were the people who saw that opening. Pro Tools, Logic, you know, MySpace. I mean, these are not the music industry as we think of it, but when you really look at all the money that was being made, it went up dramatically for those people and down dramatically for the people who were just trying to maintain that that gatekeeper status between you and the stars. In mm -hmm. other words, what they what they didn't see coming was that a big part of us wanted to be stars, wanted mm -hmm. to be the rock star. Now not everybody can be famous rock stars, but we can all make music and I mean, man, when I started doing this 20 years ago, I was not very good and I was making 300 bucks a day. That was extremely cheap compared to, you know, the studios that were charging 2000 bucks a day. I teach a class actually at University of the Arts in Philadelphia. I regularly tell these kids, you guys know way more about recording than I did when I was actually making, already making money from it. We've evolved as a culture to just understand 
creative technical stuff, right? And that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. I think the smartest people who are creating recording studios are going to be the ones who realize that like the business model is not the same business model that let's say like the record plant was working on or sure. Sigma Philadelphia, right? Th- that business model is, hey, there's these people that want to spend $100,000 at a time. We'll put all the stuff in a place where they can do that and they'll give that money to us. That business model is gone. The smartest people are going to be the people who realize that there's great potential in the experience that a recording studio allows people to have. It's experiential. It's 100% experiential. The The majority of, this is a very successful recording studio the way I, I see it. Mm-hmm. The majority of the people are not going to be household names. Um, the majority of people are not going to be maybe even able to make a living doing it. But they know that. They know that they're paying to come into a studio to work with professional recording staff, to work with a professional producer, and to, to make recordings that will last a lifetime, that will speak for them when they die. You know, I think the recording industry today, just the recording studio industry, has a lot more in common with the vacation industry than it has with like that old industry of the record plant or, um, you know, those, those old types of places. My friends, people I've been recording my whole life that, that 15 years ago, I was trying to help them, you know, make records that they could get signed with. They now come in every year, sometimes rather than going to the shore for a week in the summer. Yeah. I don't think they're wrong. I don't think they're delusional. I actually think they have their heads completely on straight. You know, they, they think about a certain amount of time every year that they want to spend in here with me or with, you know, Matt Schimmelfinig or Matt Poyer, our, our engineers. Um, that's how they think about it. And, and I honestly think, you know, going back to the community priorities, you know, this emerging community of lifelong recording artists, it's the first time in history people will be able to be on their deathbed and be like, here's, you know, giving to their grandchildren, like, here's all my recordings from when I was in my 80s. Here's all my recordings from when I was in my 70s. Here's my recordings from when I was in my 50s, my 40s. Not just like, here's this recording I did when I was in my 20s trying to make it in the industry. Like, this is an opportunity for lifelong a lifelong record of who you are and who you were and what you did here and what meant anything to you at the various stages of your life. I think that's the business that recording studios should be in. That's interesting. I like your your comparison of of vacations and and you know traveling for on holiday. Well, let's well hey, let, instead let's go to the studio and do something right. that we're going to have a great experience and something we can hold on to for a long time or in- a lifetime. The interesting thing is we think a lot about the, the notion of sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. Sustainability is quite a buzzword. What I realized over the last year or so of having these conversations is that it has different definitions depending what context you're speaking about it in. And unfortunately, when people, when people speak about sustainability with music, you'd say to a band, like, well, how, how's this going to be sustainable? And they would kind of like recoil a little bit and be like, well, you know, Hopefully we can sell a couple copies of the record. Um, hopefully we can, um, you know, make a little bit of money on tour and then maybe we get a license here or there. What they're equating in their mind is as long as what we pay for this recording, we can make it back. That equals sustainability. But if you ask like, you know, my aunt, whether her vacation to the Bahamas is sustainable, she's going to say, well, yeah, I can afford it. That's sustainable. In other words, she doesn't get to the Bahamas and have to like do a, a large, couple of odd jobs and earn the money back. Right. You know, it, it's a luxury. It's, sustainability equals affordability. You know, and and a sustainable pursuit is one that you can do af- without ruining your life. You know, <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know, uh, we routinely talk people out of doing full length records. It's honestly that's not sustainable. If you're not a an album cycle artist on a label that has investors behind it, then 99 times out of 100, the pursuit of making an album is not a sustainable pursuit. It will be something you did back in your 20s or 30s or whatever, however old you are right now. If you think sustainably, you say, you know what? Just think of it like your vacation. How much could you afford to go on vacation every year? And then say, would I rather 
could I spend that money in a recording studio? Most people I know would say, yeah, screw going to the beach. I'm going to go to the studio for, for two weeks, you know, mm-hmm. and get exactly the same stuff out of it. In fact, they get more because they, they walk away with a, a recording of their art, <laughs> something that doesn't go away, something that doesn't disappear. All right, taking a little break here from our interview with Brian McTeer on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to let you know that uh, I've got three boxes sitting here next to me, and uh, those three boxes are microphones from Audio Technica. We're going to be doing some uh, comparisons of three of these three mics. Uh, this is the Audio Technica twenty thirty five I'm holding, and uh, I also have the forty forty seven, and I also have the fifty forty. Now, um, let's see. Take a look at the forty forty seven. Yep. Well, it's in the box, so I won't take it out just yet. Um, anyways, we're going to be doing some comparisons over at Bird and Egg Studios of those mics. And reason is, is we want to highlight the differences between the mics. The 5040 uh, goes for about $29.99. The 4047 goes for $6.99. And the uh, 2035 goes for $149, typically. So uh, we want to hear what those differences are, you know. Uh, three drastically different prices and three very different microphones uh, to compare. And we'll put those up on the site so you can download those. And, you know, if you're just doing some shopping or just want to hear some comparisons, you know, whatever purpose it serves, we're going to put it up there for you to hear. Uh, We thought that'd be a really good idea. So, um, yeah, want to thank our friends over at Audio Technica for that, for allowing us to uh, check these mics out. They're really gracious about sending us stuff and letting us play around. So uh, that's it. Let's get back to our interview with Mr. Brian McTeer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'm curious about like the functionality of, of Minor Street and, and what's working for you all. Like, why do you think you're busy? You touched on, you know, weather vane kind of influencing the business a bit. What other factors do you think keep your studio busy? Like the, the class I'm teaching at University of the Arts is studio entrepreneurship. Sort of feel like it's probably the only thing I'm really qualified to, to teach, you know? Mm-hmm. All, all this engineering biz we've just made up as we went along. We've gotten okay <laughs> with it, you know? But the studio entrepreneurship is something I, I think I have legitimate understanding of now. You know, probably about 25% of the artists that come through and do work here are well-known artists, people who make a living doing it, you know? The War on Drugs, uh, Kurt Vile, uh, done records with Sharon Van Etten, done records... Um, mixed records with Joan Osborne. I'm really bad at listing these things because I, I forget a lot of people. But that, that say, 25% in a year, that word gets out. Mm-hmm. That helps a lot. Most people who hear that, you know, a local native's record was, was mixed here at this studio are saying to themselves, yeah, well, we're going to go and do sa- the same thing that, local natives did. We're going to mix a full length record and we're going to blah, 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 blah. And, then, and they're going to ratchet themselves up to a, a, a budget project that, that again, is not sustainable. What we're trying to do is talk those people into thinking on that annual cycle. To your question, Weathervane shows that this is a great place. It's an inspiring place and that we're really excellent people. And actually, I think the, uh, yeah, I'm speaking mostly about the other guys, but that this is a great place to to record and it's and it's fun and it's cool and and the sounds that come out of here are, are really creative and 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 awesome. I think they're even exceptional, you know. On top of that, you have those twenty to twenty five percent of well known artists who the word gets out and that that brings in a lot more business. My feeling is that it's the danger is that that's going to be short term business. I don't want those people to come in just once and then quit, right? Because right. Of, because of their expectations and because they had such a good time and we had such a successful creative experience that their expect, expectations are so inordinately high for how successful that recording is going to be that it just collapses and they quit. Mm-hmm. I would much rather have people say, you know, ha- have realistic expectations business-wise and therefore spend accordingly mm-hmm. and be able to come back every year for like the next 20 to 25 years. <laughs> you know, you, you remind me of a panel that I had, I saw at some point it was, um, tape op or potluck audio. And it was, 
I can't remember if it was Ian Mackay from Fugazi or if it was Don Z and Tara from Inner Ear talking about Fugazi, but the concept was this. Ian knew with Discord Records that he inevitably was going to be buying studio time from Don. Mm-hmm. Ian, in an intent to help support Don's ventures at, at Inner Ear, he would pre-buy time mm-hmm. because he knew he was going to use it anyway. Yeah. And that kind of kind of touches on the concept of you know community and really kind of investing in the local business. You know, you talk about this annual concept. And so that's the, that reminds me of that that panel that I that I saw at some point, and I that still stays with me. Ian, like, Ian Mackay is like one of my top three to three or four heroes. Like he, he's in fact he fits a couple of he he deserves like two spaces in my top three. You know, I actually got I was awesome. I talked to him on the phone a couple of years ago. Uh, you know about Weathervane, and that was one of the coolest experiences of my life. When I was a kid, when I was eighteen, the first recording experience I ever had was our band went and recorded with Don Zintara oh. uh, at Inner Ear. Yeah, it was the coolest. He's such a great guy. Oh, man. He, he I got to was... have him. We've, we've, on Facebook, we've talked about having him on the show. We'll, eventually, we'll have him on, but such a sweetheart. He was awesome. And, you know, I was such a little kid then. I mean, I, there's, no way in, there's no way he could possibly remember me or my band, you know, because we, we just, well, we did. We spent, saved all our money. We went in and we recorded a four-song tape, you know? Um, and, uh, it was such a cool experience. We did it cause Fugazi was our, was, was like our favorite band. And we knew that they were realists, you know, we were desiring to be realists ourselves. And, and, and it was very cool. That annual concept. I, I think the other thing that people maybe need to sort of slightly reconfigure. And I think this is a, I don't have fully have the language for, for this yet, but to say like, you know, there's, album cycle artists, and then there's annual cycle artists. It doesn't mean that people who come in on an annual basis aren't going to be making albums. I think the distinction is going to be a sustainable album cycle artist, you know, a successful album cycle artist. They get to the end of one album cycle and they say, all right, time to make our next record. What's it going to be like? And they can pre-budget and pre-conceptualize this new work of art, you know, and they can probably even start collecting images for the cover and, and they can start, they can have this like uniform sort of like purpose built idea for what this work of art is going to be like an annual cycle artist. I think it's, it's going to, the, the album is going to have something a little more in common with like a yearbook, you know, when a, a high school or college get yearbook committee gets together, you know, they don't, they don't say, um, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up a, 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 a scene with a bunch of kids in bleachers at a soccer game. And, uh, and then we're going to get another picture of this and we're going to, they don't put that it's, it's an actual record of what happened. And I think the only difference, the major difference between an annual cycle artist and a album cycle artist is that the annual cycle artist is more, you know, retro retroactively taking what they did this past year and saying, here it is world. Again, if they're smart about it, if they do it sustainably, they can do it year after year after year. I mean, I really, truly think that this approach projected out three to five years, you'll have people actually, you know, accomplishing more, putting mm-hmm. out more music and more music out there that is being quote unquote released. And so that, that is getting sort of funneled through and you'll be more likely to be perceived as a real uh, album cycle artist. And maybe even you'll be perceived that way by people who want to invest in your out next album, and now now you're an, al- an album cycle artist. You currently teach the studio entrepreneurship? I do. Can you talk a little bit about that, about what you teach, some of the concepts and ideas? Because <laughs> there, we, obviously there's a lot of studio owners out there. There's a lot yeah. of up-and-coming people. They'd love to hear what you have to say. The number one thing is understanding the business model that you're working on mm-hmm. and, and not mistaking that with the business model you want to work in. Like, yeah, I want to work in the business model of the record plant, but that's not a sustainable business model anymore. So being careful to, to really identify what, the, what makes the wheels turn in, a, in your studio. So that, that's kind of got to be ever-present knowledge. Even more important than that is being skilled at client building and client retention. Why does Minor Street sponsor Weathervane Music when, when I have my Minor Street hat on? It's because it helps us reach new clients. 
those new clients then come in and have a great experience. And now they are our ongoing clients. We, we just need to, again, make sure not to make sure that our process doesn't kill the goose that laid the golden egg. You know, we've got to make sure they don't get themselves in trouble a year from now. They can come in and do the same thing or six months from now, they can do a little more or whatever, however you dice it up. The majority of the considerations are in this studio entrepreneurship class are identifying with clarity what the business model is and then being hyper-focused on how you, how and where you find people so that they know to come in and work in your studio. Mm -hmm. That's it. Interesting. Do you ever address freelancers or do you yeah. just, what are, what's some of your advice for those that are, I don't want to say student homeless but studio studioless you know, no no, no. Yeah, studioless I mean, people people who want to who want to roam free this is a golden age of studios man you know like there's there's tons and tons and tons of recording studios all of them functioning at bargain basement prices you know compared mm -hmm. right comparatively i it's really not very much different um everybody starts as a sole proprietor or as a as a freelancer it's the same thing it's knowing what your business model is and knowing how and where to find clients, how to be good at client, client development, and how to retain clients. It's the exact same thing. Jonathan Lowe is one of our, one of my, he's the first person that ever interned here at the studio. He started 10 years ago, and he sort of became my, our head engineer here for years. He was younger than me, so he had different, like the, the, the music he grew up with, the music he was really, hyper excited about was slightly different than what I was hyper excited about. And so he would be my assistant engineer, but he would also go out and get his own work. You know, so it's, it's, it's about knowing ways to get people to know about what you do. Actually, one thing I did when I first moved to Philadelphia, I didn't own a studio yet. Uh, I was a sound guy at a venue and I just sort of said, hey, I'm going to do a holiday compilation. Uh, to to bands opening bands that that were local bands at at this venue, uh, it's called Silk City in Philadelphia. And I said, "Do you want to come in and record? You know, come to my place, or I can come to your place, and I'll, we'll do a song for free for this holiday compilation." And then I just li literally made one tape, one cassette tape for every individual in all the bands that participated in this, uh, and delivered them about a week before the before Christmas. A lot of those bands became my clients for the next two or three years. I, I did five records with one band. So it, I guess it's, it's, it is about, you have to be outgoing. You can't expect things to just come to you. And actually, sadly, I have to say, you can't expect the quality of your work to speak for you. Because we're like, we're swimming in a world of, of very high quality work. Um, there's very, there's not a high quality, the quality of, Recordings is not nearly as exceptional, uh, or, or I should say, as uh, important, or not, not nearly the driving force for for somebody's success uh, as it used to be. So, what do you think the factors are? Being now? a being a good collaborator, being a good person to work with, being a trustworthy person, being a person that like when the band, you know, if the band's out here, you know, playing, doing a basic track, and they finish the song. And we, you know, let the tape go a little bit longer. Then we hit stop. We say, that was really great. Or that was pretty good, but you should do it again. We don't go, what do you guys think? You know, they want a collaborator. They right. want a person. They want a person who uh, is excited to say, that wasn't good enough. Do it again. Or that was great. Don't redo that. They want a collaborator. They want a person who's equally invested in the 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 artistic and creative success of the project they've brought to you. Um, mm -hmm. And believe it or not, that is not what most people are willing to, to do. Or if they're not willing, my only criticism of the great Mr. Steve Albini. Who I, is, knew, I knew this was coming. Who I, is another I, one of my heroes, right? Another, right. Truly another one of my heroes. Man, he made it really difficult for a long time for anybody who, call, who wanted to call themselves a producer to call themselves a producer. He made it that, the, that producer was like a four-letter word. You know, you, you, you weren't supposed to be telling the artist what to do. You weren't, it was supposed, you were supposed to be capturing what they were doing. And that was it. And it made it, it, it was actually really interesting. It made it so that for me that, you know, at first I was very, 
I, I thought it was me being gracious and generous to first ask the artist what they think, then I'll tell them what I think. That was me maybe overstepping my bounds a little bit, the part of telling them what I think. When I slipped up a few times and right away said, that was really good, or do that one more time, I saw that they really appreciated it. And I, and I saw that, and, and I truly believe in this day and age, people don't need great engineers, they need great producers. You know, yeah. a great producer is someone who knows how to complete a project. And for that matter, I really think professionality itself is based on the ability to complete projects. Or the, if not a full-on producer, possibly an engineer who is a few opinions shy of a producer that at least, you know, can interact and not just be like the button yeah. pusher, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny. Definitions of what a producer is anyway are, are so variable, even project there's, to project. There's no gold standard. Yeah, there's there, there, exactly. I mean, there's plenty of times where I remember a, a, a band I recorded with years back saying like, you know, what I did, I, I said, you know, the guy himself was was himself a producer. But when he got in to do records with me, I ended up doing exactly the same job I was doing when I was producing records for other people. And I told him that. I said, hey, on this next thing, you know, can I be the producer? Because I, I actually am doing that same, the same job I do when I'm producer and producer for anybody else. And his answer was, well, we already have all our parts written, so we don't really need a producer. And I just sort of laughed because I thought, is that what you think a producer does? Write all your parts, you know, or, or arrange things? Or a producer is the person who literally takes a band that has nothing when they walk in the door and produces, delivers a completed project. Now, sometimes that requires me to step in creatively. If that's not comfortable, I can be like, hey, I, I can... I can move this forward on on the sort of like creative trope that an artist has sort of come into it with, you know, mm -hmm. and actually enjoy myself quite a bit, you know. But the producer, in my opinion, the producer is a person who gets things, who sees to it that a project gets completed and and therefore is an important collaborator. I, I could guarantee you that where I am in Philadelphia right now, within a one-mile radius of this studio – there's probably a thousand recordings of songs in a state of not finishedness. Just I'm sure. And and they're not gonna get finished. But you come in and you work with us and you start with nothing on one day and by the end of that day it's done. You know, and I think that's cool. You know, that's that's the job I think we the role we fit, you know. Well, so we're, we're running out of time, so I want to make sure uh, I, we mention this. So, okay, is it weathervanemusic.com? Uh, it's weathervanemusic.org. .org, um, okay. Yeah, go to weathervanemusic.org. You know, there you can find the Shaking Through series. There's about 50 episodes, a little more than 50, spanning the last six years. Uh, and the other thing, actually, um, we are going to be recording a new Shaking Through session this weekend, uh, Saturday, uh, February 6th and 7th. 2016, we live stream the, the shooting of the sessions now. So yeah, this unfortunately is going to come out on the Monday after. Oh, uh, well, go watch the live stream. I think the live stream uh, oh, yeah. archive will still be there. The live stream just sort of shows people the full behind the scenes of what's going on. When it's completed, we'll edit it into the episode itself, and that episode will come out uh, in March. So great. And then uh, your studio, MinorStreetRecording.com. Uh, minorstreet.com. Yeah. Minorstreet. Okay.com. Excellent. This has been fantastic, Brian. I, I, I could actually, I could talk to you for a much longer time and I look forward at some point in the future and meeting you in person and, and having a sit down, uh, chat face to face. That'd be other great. Other than on Skype. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, this is, this is great. Great information and, and great concepts. And I wish you the best of luck with, uh, with both ventures, Minor Street and Weathervane, and uh, thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you. Maybe next time we can talk about some creative techniques. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Instead exactly. of higher, the you know, uh, you know. Well, and that's okay concepts. though, because that's what that's what a lot of the show is about is talking about you know. Yeah. What? How does this all fit together? So. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I I really appreciate it. Uh, and I you know. Thanks to Bob Bailey. <laughs> Let, let's thank Bob. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, Bob's Bob's Weathervane's number one me member now. Awesome. E everybody else has a little bit of catching up to do. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right, there it is. Brian McTeer from Weathervane Music and Minor Street Recording from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thanks very much for listening. And if you are interested in Weathervane Music, if you go to weathervanemusic.org slash workingclassaudio, you can get yourself 10% off if you're a Working Class Audio listener. Log on, check that out, and uh, sign up. I think that'd be a great service to check out. Ah, there's the music. We are out of time. So uh, that's Cliff, of course, Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith at the top, Cole Williams helping out with social media and audio support. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors. Especially want to say thank you to all of you for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.